Friends, uh, thank you very much for the warm welcome uh, for me and my family. It's uh, particularly exciting to see some familiar faces as well. So thank you for uh, the invitation by the selection committee to, for me to come and preach. So really, it's an honor. Uh, just a couple of words before you know, I pray for us. I pray for myself because I need it. Uh, and then we'll look at this text. Uh, during the week uh, when I was uh, preparing for the sermon, um, my boss at CMS sent me a text message. Uh, how are you feeling about coming, you know, to preach at Epping for a call? Uh, and, you know, my, my boss is a great guy. You know, CMS is a great organization. So this is a shout out to CMS uh, because, you know, for the last couple of years, it's been great partnership that I have with them. So I'm not running away from this ministry. Uh, they've been praying for us, praying for you as well. Uh, and so really this period, I felt like people were, you know, I just felt carried by prayer. And thank you that you've been praying too. And so I wrote, uh, I sent a text message back to my boss and say, you know, I kind of feel like going to the dentist uh, to preach for a call. I'm not sure if you like, are there any dentists here? No offense. Um, you know, but you know, somebody poking at you and making to see whether all your flossing and brushing, you know, did it get all the lollies out? Uh, but it's not a bad thing, isn't it? Every once in a while, you know, for someone to examine you to see how you handle the word, uh, it's a good thing. Uh, and it's a good thing to, for you and for me to be here in this space because God forms partnership. I have no idea what's going to happen in the future. So we don't have a crystal ball, right? But, you know, but what we can trust God is God will be faithful uh, for you and, and for me. And that's good enough, isn't it? Partnership that works brings joy. Uh, and so my prayer for you, whoever the new senior minister comes, whether it's me or not, really doesn't matter. You know that a senior minister is not the silver bullet that solves all your problems, right? Because I can't do that. <laughs> uh, there is only one savior in the church. His name is Jesus. Uh, and any senior minister, any minister worth his salt just points to him. So that, we're going to do that now. Let's pray to Jesus. Uh, Jesus, be lifted up, be lifted high again. Uh, by your grace, would you open our eyes like Saul, uh, that we might see your majesty and fall in worship, uh, even now. For your sake we pray. Amen. Uh, so here's the thing, right? You can't grow a church without growing people. You can't revitalize a church without revitalizing people. But not everyone is a Paul or a Barnabas, right? They're pretty special people in my opinion. Paul's pretty spectacular. Uh, his conversion or commission, whatever you want to call it, is pretty spectacular. I haven't met anyone else who kind of have a conversion story like that. Uh, and Paul had unique qualifications at the same time. You know what I call he... he he had pedigree, right? He was born in Tarsus, a Roman citizen. In other words, he had the right passport. He had the right connection, uh, even though time and again people still throw him in prison. Um, he probably went to a select high Jewish, uh, you know, select Jewish high school, graduated top of his class under Gamaliel. Uh, he had a reputation for being so zealous uh, for the, the, the Jewish laws of, and, and the traditions of the forefathers, that people knew him for that. You see, Paul was the right person right, to take the gospel to the next step, to deal with the Jewish fanatics because he was one himself before the Lord Jesus met him. Right? That's Paul. You, you know, 
Not everyone can be a Paul. Not, what about Barnabas? Uh, in my opinion, Barnabas uh, had a lot of disposable income. Uh, you know, he was rich. Uh, but more than that, uh, he had one of those winsome, generous, encouraging personality uh, that in the church, when you're someone like that, that's a blessing. All right, Barnabas will just grow, walk with you, and encourage you. Uh, and so not everyone can be a Paul or a Barnabas, but everyone, in my opinion, can be an Ananias. Ordinary, fearful Ananias. Probably was just doing his quiet time when the Lord called him. But the thing is, no Ananias, no Paul. Isn't it? No Ananias, no Paul. History will be, uh, God's will, God's gospel will continue to go ahead, but it might just look very different. Um, the two ways you can try and understand the book of Acts, you know, one way which I think you should know is to kind of track the progress of Acts to the gospel across geography and across culture. You know, as the gospel goes from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria to the ends of the earth, uh, it's shedding its Jewish outer casing. That doesn't mean it stopped becoming, you know, about promises to Abraham and to David. It just means that it's no longer about the outward symbols of the Jewish temple, the law, and circumcision. And so you could do that. You know, Luke very helpfully dropped, you know, kind of gave progress reports along the way. There is one at the end of the chapter 9 in verse 31 where it says, you know, the church is at peace, the church is growing, and faith is growing. The other way to understand this book is, of course, to look at what doesn't change as the gospel changes geography, changes culture. All right? the, the constant in the, the sea of change is what I call it. And for me, that has to be the name. Right? Everywhere you read the book of Acts, it is about the name. Even the book before that, the book of Luke, it is about the name. Come with me to Acts chapter 9, verse 15. You encounter this name. Who is this name? Saul's question in verse 5 you know, is instructive. He says, who are you, Lord? What is your name? And a voice from heaven replied, I am Jesus. Right? Jesus is that name that is causing all the stir from the beginning of this book. Everything that happens in this book of Acts, every conflict, right, every tension, you know, as the gospel is pulling away, there's friction. That's what we're seeing in chapter 9, partly. Stretch marks. It is all because of the name. Uh, this name, the gospel can be contextualized. It doesn't matter where you go. China, Malaysia, Singapore, Cambodia, Shanghai, Sri Lanka, The gospel can be contextualized, but it is still about the name of Jesus being worshipped as the only name that brings salvation, which is what Peter said in Acts 4. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. You know, the Sanhedrin, we'll come to them a little bit shortly. You know, the Sanhedrins, when they were in chapter 4, were quite happy for the apostles to teach. And that's not the problem. You can teach. Just not in this name. They had a particular problem with this name, the name Jesus. Ananias said to Jesus in verse 13, Lord, I've heard many reports about this man, Saul, 
and all the harm he has done to your holy people in Jerusalem. He has come here with authority from the chief priest to arrest all who call on your name. Here's the, de- here's the definition for being a Christian. Who are Christians? Christians are people who call on the name of Jesus. That means worship. That means prayer. That means dependence on this name. Um, the Lord replied Ananias in verse 15. Go, for this man is my chosen instrument to proclaim my name to the Gentiles and their kings, to the people of Israel, and I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. So here's the first question, Epping Presbyterian. What's the significance in your name? Whose name are we gathering this evening? And in whose name are we going to go out later on as we go out into the world? Is it the name of Jesus or is it some other name? Right? You might be asking, well, what's the alternative? Of course it's Jesus. Uh, we might ask the question differently by asking, well, in, in what name did Saul come to Damascus? Right? Name and authority are the same thing. Right? In whose name, in whose authority, which institution, you might ask, right, is Saul coming? And the answer is found, of course, in verse 2. Right? And the name that Paul uses is the name of the high priest. That's, his author- that's the authority uh, that Paul is coming, Saul is coming into Damascus. Paul and Saul, you know, I'm talking about the same person, right? Yeah? Good? Uh, and so here, here, here is the high priest is the head of the Sanhedrin, right? The, high, you know, the, the, the highest Jewish ruling religious council uh, in the days of Jesus. They represent the leadership uh, of, uh, in Jesus' days. Someone once told me that bad leadership is bad news everywhere. Right? Bad leaders are concerned about their own name, their own social status. Right? And that's why I think in this country, it's very difficult to be a politician when you govern by you know, your popularity. It's very hard. Pray for your prime minister. I think he needs a lot of prayer. Uh, but the Sanhedrin's are bad news. Well, the last time we met them was in chapter 7. Chapter 7 and chapter 9 are really, really connected. You don't understand what's happening in chapter 9. You have to go back to chapter 7 because it, it is a conflict of authority of whose name is being used. Right? And so you, you, you remember chapter 7, uh, during the trial of Stephen, Saul was there. Saul approved of Stephen's execution. Uh, and then when it happened, after that, Saul was so zealous, Saul persecuted the church. Acts chapter 9 begins with Saul on his way to Damascus. Damascus is two weeks travel. I can't imagine it's, you know, very luxurious travel. Two weeks that shows Paul's determination to persecute the Christians because from his perspective, Christians were a perversion of the Jewish faith. Right? That's what Paul was trying to, you know, Paul was trying to work out, well, you, you're a sect and you're a cult, pretty much. Right? That was so, so intent right, to persecute the Christian until literally Jesus met him with a light from heaven to show him how blind he had been to the truth. And so when you put all of that together, read verse 4 and 5 again. Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? 
In other words, Jesus stands with all who are persecuted in his name. Today, if you are suffering in the name of Jesus, Jesus stands with you. Jesus advocates for you. Suffering might still, you still might have to go through the suffering, but you know that Jesus is with you. Jesus is suffering. We read about Asia Bibi and we pray quite rightly that maybe he can find asylum. But I tell you, a better prayer would be for Jesus' name to be glorified through Asia's BB's, you know, testimony. You know, she's not alone. There are many Christians in different parts of the world who have to stand up for the name of Jesus. Uh, two of our CMS missionaries, Gordon and Ruth, they are CMS missionaries to Nepal. And Nepal has just passed, the Nepalese government has just passed this rule, uh, this law uh, that, you know, basically prosecutes any Nepalese who converts from Hinduism. Right? It's not just foreigners now. And Gordon and Ruth are telling us about the response from the churches. The pastors are saying, well, bring it on. Because there's not enough prison in, in Nepal to put in all the Nepalese Christians because God has been faithful. God has been at work. You know, for that faith, I, I salute them. You know, what if calling on the name of Jesus brings persecution? What if, mean, what, what if it means, you know, losing reputation, losing friends? Then the passage tells us today, Jesus stands with us. Jesus advocates for us before the Father. You remember Stephen before he died? You know, the last scene of Stephen, um, where, you know, full of the Holy Spirit, he saw the glory of God, he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God. You know, every other passage, even the creed that we confess, have, you know, Jesus sitting at the right hand of the Father, waiting to come in judgment. Uh, so the question we might ask is, why was Jesus standing in this scene? One writer suggests that there were two court scenes in progress here. There was the earthly court scene under one high priest, the earthly high priest, during the trial of Stephen. They pass condemnation on Stephen with Saul's approval. While that was going on, right, there was a, the, the heavenly courts were meeting. And Jesus, the high priest, stood before the judge, his father. That's that high priest. Jesus was standing and advocating for Stephen, maybe saying to the father, Father, he belongs to me. This one is mine. He belongs to me. He is called by my name. And now this king, this heavenly high priest, comes in his own name to meet his accuser, Saul. I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. You're not just hurting my followers. You are hurting me. Now, Saul shouldn't be alive. If you know your testament, you know what it's like to meet God. You know this is unusual. Paul shouldn't be alive, but he was. Because this king is different. This high priest is different. This king is different from the earthly ones. It will not be true vengeance. It will not be true violence that he built his kingdom, but true forgiveness and love. 
You know, if the gospel is about God making his enemies his friends, then here is the quintessential expression of God's grace and mercy, his majesty, and his mercy demonstrated through the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul should have died, but instead he was struck blind. Paul's blindness was indicative of his own true spiritual condition and as well as reflective of the rest of the nation of Israel. But I also think that it's symbolic of the spiritual condition of many people in our world regarding Jesus. We need to pray. We need to pray that God would open the eyes of our friends and neighbors that they might see the real Jesus. That's what discipleship is about, right? Discipleship is about meeting Jesus, following Jesus, becoming like Jesus, and then looking forward to joining him. Jesus told Paul to get up and then go into the city to wait for further instruction. And then the story turns to Ananias. You know, I just love the way, you know, after this whole violent incident, notice how the narrative just changed. Ordinary Ananias. Uh, Love the way Luke tells the story uh, because sometimes the most dramatic transformation in the Bible are often understated, right? You know, again, you know, the gospel is crossing boundaries, right? Geography and culture, but there are other, you know, other boundaries and barriers that are being crossed here, like hatred, like fear and yet done in such an understated way, when enemies becomes friends and then families. One of my strategies to kind of stay connected with my children, uh, I have a feeling I'll be in trouble with them because I said something about a dog, but you know. um, But one of my strategies is to read young adult fiction, you know, just to kind of stay in touch with what what they are thinking. And if you read enough of young adult fiction, there are themes that come up, right? common in young adult genre. For example, in all young, most of young adults writing, the parents are idiots. It's true. Uh, the parents are either self-indulgent, or they're kind of absorbing their own world, or they're absent-minded, they're incapacitated by, incapacitated by alcohol, by drugs, by mental illness. Uh, you know, it's, there's always this anger towards their parents, right? Um, and, and so, but, you know, that, that's that's necessary for the plot that, that launches the young adults into his or her mission, right? Uh, and so if you're wondering why your children are being disrespectful to you, maybe they've been reading some things. And, and so that's a cultural construct because uh, you can have your mission without being disrespectful to your parents, uh, you know, and you, without being angry with God. Uh, that is possible. Uh, the other important must-have ingredient, of course, in all young adult genre, that's the, the defining thing, right, is, of course, the romance, the love. Right, and here is where I often roll my eyes. I see some people smiling, right? Sometimes I think I like reading this because I love rolling my eyes and face palming. Right, when, when all the attraction is physical, right, someone say, oh, you know, my heart skip a bit. Uh, or, or, you know, you, you feel the person's presence so close that you start to, you know, pulsate. Um, that, that's, you know, that's what it is about. 
But every now and again, a good writer surprises you. Right? A good writer will, will, will describe that transformation in very understated way. You know, when a character might be dangerous to start with, might even be the enemy, right? starts to become a friend or an acquaintance. And then without, you know, as the story progresses, that person becomes, you know, someone closer, like a soulmate. And then eventually that's someone that you find that you can't live without. There's a change of perspective. Something is happening in that relationship that literally was something there that wasn't there before. And this freshness of perspective that, you know, the friend, the stranger becoming a friend and then becoming somebody important and significant. I think something is going, uh, something is happening here at the same time. Um, and so, you know, there's, there's, a, there's a few things happening here in this book, right? So while Saul was trying to work out, you know, how, you know, Saul being Jewish, you know, he understands that the Messiah is to come. He was trying to work out, well, how could God, Messiah, die on a cross like a cursed criminal? Well, Saul was trying to work that out. Ananias was trying to work out, well, God, how could a killer be used by this Messiah? Right? They both need a transformation, and God is doing that. See, for Ananias, uh, everything that Ananias knew about Saul, right? Lord, I've heard many things about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints. Everything that Ananias heard about Saul just cries out to him, stranger, danger. You know, stranger danger? You've been taught well? Yes? See, stranger danger makes sense when you're a little child. That's right. But you can't stay a little child. Eventually, one has to grow up and learn to make friends. Stranger, right? That's how they start, right? How does that happen? By cultivating and nurturing curiosity about the stranger by taking calculated risks, by carving out a space in your life to allow the stranger to come in. See, there is a tension here, isn't it? Yes, you're not sure whether the stranger that's coming to you is bearing a gift or bearing a bomb in our today's context. And yet, if you, if you don't open up a space in your life to welcome that stranger, you never find out. You missed out on the gift. That's what curiosity is about, being open about the fact that maybe there's something individual about this person. Maybe if we move this person from the stereotype, there might be something unique about him, that he actually brings a gift that he can contribute to us. Um, Epping, you cannot, we cannot reach the nations here and overseas if we do not have a curiosity about the stranger. By definition, mission requires us to be curious and to trust that we are taking risks with Jesus. See, that's trust. Faith is trust in God, who is the ultimate stranger. Think about it. God is ultimately holy. Other person. We will never understand this God if, if God didn't come down to us and open his space for us to see him. And when we have experienced the love, like we were stranger, we were enemies, like Saul. We've been brought into the family because of God's love and grace. 
And when we've experienced that, then that gives us the courage to then say, to be like Jesus, to welcome the stranger, to be curious. That's what Ananias did in the end, right? His reference to Jesus is that Jesus whom you met is, is the one who is sending me. Um, you know, and again, I just love how ordinary the account can seem. You know, it's great and insurmountable barriers have been broken. Uh, something beautiful where former enemies becomes friend and family. And this is the work of the Holy Spirit. This is what we call reconciliation. Saul needed forgiveness and acceptance. Who better to forgive Saul than the very person that Saul came to hurt? The killer pardoned by his victim in the name of Jesus. Saul, sorry, Ananias calls Saul brother. I know we all call brother, hey bro, you know, that's different, right? That we call bro, you know, that's because we have somehow this admiration for gang culture. Uh, but, you know, when we, in the church, when we call brother and sister, it's because Jesus has met us and we've been brought into his family. The rest, they say, is history. History for the rest of the book of Acts, history for the rest of the New Testament, history for the mission of the church. But no Ananias, no Paul. Let me bring things to a close. Okay. Not everyone can be a Paul or a Barnabas, but we don't need to. Uh, there are, the body of Christ is diverse. You know, even in the book of Acts, there are many unnamed, unsung heroes that just, just does that. They were obedient to God. They were disciple maker, but in the quiet. Uh, the church is diverse, but there is one spirit, one savior, one gospel, one name, one family. The story of Acts is not finished. You know, Jesus is still calling us to obedience to him, to bring the strangers into his family. Uh, maybe risky business, but, you know, believing in Jesus is risky business, isn't it? But if you never bring, you know, Jesus could be the stranger that you're trying to see, if, you know, is it safe for Jesus to come and be my king? But if you never open up your space to allow Jesus, you'll never realize whether he's bringing a gift or not. And I'm telling you, it is a gift. You'll never regret this. Uh, I find the story of Ananias encouraging. All right? I personally think that I'm quite like an Ananias. I prefer to just do the one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, my wife calls me many things, but one of the things she calls me is, I'm the one sheep shepherd. I go for that one sheep. It doesn't matter whether you're a pastor of 10, 100, or 1,000. It's still that one person before you, and you still need to ask the question, what is God's will for that person? How is that person going to grow? Um, I see many Ananias in the churches that I visit, or any, you know, any Ananias. You, know, you recognize them because they all kind of prefix what they do with the just. I'm just a Sunday school teacher. I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a single working mom. I'm just the person who's teaching scripture. Oh, I'm just this. I'm a, you know, something that puzzles me about the Apostle Paul, right? You know, the Apostle Paul uh, wrote 1 Corinthians. In 1 Corinthians 15, he writes about what he received as the foundation of his faith, right? His ABC, somebody taught, for the, uh, somebody taught Paul the foundation of his faith, the basics. 
uh, and then what Paul is passing on. So 1 Corinthians 15, Now I remind you, brothers and sisters, of the gospel I preached to you, which you receive. All right? We didn't invent this gospel. We receive it. In which you stand and by which you are being saved, if you hold fast to the word I, word I preached to you, unless you believe in vain. And notice where Paul gets it from. For I deliver to you as of first importance what I also received. Somebody taught Paul that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, that he appeared to Caiaphas and to the Twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive at that time, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Paul's thinking about the Damascus Road. Paul said, right, that's, that's where, you know, I received this. My question is, well, who taught Paul? Where did Paul receive this? My guess is Ananias. Right, we know in the early church when there's baptism, there's catechism. There's just teaching of the foundation of faith. Right, the, what I call the ABC of faith. Never despise the small things of God. Never despise, you know, teaching the foundations again and again and again. Paul's not, you know, Paul doesn't look at that and say that's, you know, that's just basic. Paul said, I pass on as of first importance to you. And so if you're the Ananias in this church and you just feel like, oh, I'll just do this thing, I'm not even sure if that kid is listening to me. Be encouraged. You know, under God, anything can happen. You know, that kid, that child that is terrorizing your Sunday school class or your scripture class, you know, may one day become your pastor. I've seen worse things happen, stranger things happen. But God can do it. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for the majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, his sovereignty, his power, and yet his humility. Thank you that we can become his family. Father, as you, you know, would you draw us into your family and give us the courage, give us curiosity about the stranger, and then help us in your name to open up our lives to them. Amen.